It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. The social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and uh, we got a good one. It's Wednesday, which means coming up in about an hour, we have uh, armchair politics, political uh, operative, and 2020 elector from the uh, Electoral College. Uh, one of the voters from here in Michigan, Bobby Clayton Walton, will join our roundtable regulars uh, Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right. And um, we'll be uh, talking about um, local, state, and national news, politics, and current events uh, all coming up in about an hour or so. But in the meantime, as we are wont to do periodically, we're going to be uh, visiting with economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan Flint, who joins me now by phone. Chris, welcome to the show. Good to talk to you again. Hey, Tom. Great to be here. Um, I suppose we should probably start right out with uh, um, how much GameStop stock you've got. (laughs) I I have zero shares. (laughs) I wish I would have bought about a month ago when it was about $20 a share. Uh, but it shows that if there's a concerted effort by a large group of people, and what's interesting is the concerted effort of a large group of people on an anonymous internet message board, rather than people at brokerage houses colluding with each other, that you can really move the stock price up quickly and very substantially. It's not the first time something like this has happened. Um, there was a famous case in the 1980s where the Hunt brothers tried to corner the market for silver by buying up all the silver. It drove the price of silver way up until it crashed, which it looks like what what's happening with GameStop. Well, and and coincidentally, silver jumped like 10% on Monday. 
Yeah, I don't know what's driving that either. <laughs> there seems to be some coordinated effort on the internet to get people to buy silver for some reason. It's the return of the Hunt Brothers? That. I guess. <laughs> there are some conspiracy theories on the internet that suggest that it's like um, a disinformation campaign to get people to buy silver to take pressure off of GameStop to let the price of GameStop stock fall, to take the pressure off of the hedge funds that have shorted GameStop stock. Who knows if that's the case? <clears throat> but it seems like what drove GameStop was a bunch of traders found that a hedge fund substantially shorted GameStop stock, which means they're betting, or the hedge fund was betting that the price was going down. Well, these traders decide to do execute what's called a short squeeze, where you start buying the stock to cause the price to go up, thinking that the hedge fund selling shorting the stock would have to unwind its position, buy back the shares it's shorting, which would cause the price to go up even further. So what happened to GameStop was a classic short squeeze, where people catch wind of a stock being shorted, deciding to take the other side of that bet to try to try to drive the price up. So it's really a war of attrition. So there is conspiracy theories on the internet that suggest that buying silver was a disinformation campaign to get people who are taking the other side of the short bet for GameStop to stop focusing on GameStop and focus on silver, but who knows? What um, can can you walk can you walk us through the the whole GameStop thing, what happened and and when did it happen? Um, the impression that a lot of people, I think, at least for myself anyway, a lot uh, the impression that a lot of people got was that that somehow this was accidental and not intentional, that it it was some some flaw in online uh, stock purchasing. Yeah, to start at the beginning, I guess, there's this hedge fund called Melvin Capital that had shorted game stock. And what does it mean to GameStop. short a stock? Yeah, so usually when you buy stock, you go long, which means you buy the stock and hold it and hope the price goes up. You know, that's what most retail investors do. If you have a 401k or an IRA with stock, that's what you're doing. But you could also go short. And what that means is you're betting the price will fall. So what you do is you go out to the market, find someone with shares of the stock you want to short, borrow those shares, sell them right now, and then promise to buy those shares back in the future. So the idea is you sell now when the price is high, and then when the price falls in the future, you buy them back, and the difference between what you sold the shares for and what you paid to buy the shares back for is your profit. So if GameStop is 20 bucks a share, by shorting it, you sell the stock right now for 20 bucks a share. Then if it falls to, say, $1 a share, you go buy it when it's a dollar a share, and then that $19 difference is your profit. And if you're a hedge fund, you're doing that with several million shares, and that turns out to be a substantial profit. Well, the problem is, if you get that wrong, if the price rises, you find yourself taking losses. Because you sold the stock for $20 that someone owns, you're obligated to buy it back. So if the price starts going up to, say, $100 or $200 or $300 like it did, you might have to buy the stock back for you know, 10 times what you sold it for. 
which means you're selling low and buying high and find yourself racking up pretty pretty severe losses. And the interesting thing, too, with shorting a stock, your losses hypothetically are infinite. So if you go long on a stock, suppose you spend $1,000 buying stock for a company, well, the most you could lose is $1,000 if the stock price falls to zero, which doesn't seem very likely, but it could happen. But if you short a stock, right, you're obligated to buy that stock at some point in the future, and there's no limit to how high the stock conceivably could rise, which makes shorting stock just so much riskier than just buying and holding stock. So that's kind of a short overview of what it means to short stock. How, Chris, how is it legal to sell stock you don't own? Yeah, I mean, that's a question people ask. Um, I think the um, argument is, well, you're going into the market of buying someone's shares, and they're freely lending you those shares to sell. You're just obligated to buy them back at some point in the future. It's just a voluntary contract between you and the person who owns the shares you're borrowing. It does sound weird. And then, that would be like saying, so you buy I, the, bar- So you buy the stock back right then you return the ownership to the person you borrowed it from correct i know it does sound bizarre it would be like if i borrowed your car sold it and then promised to buy it back in the future thinking the price of your car is going to go down to the future it's a weird arrangement uh but it's that actually that actually could work (laughs) (laughs) sure yeah i guess uh, cars depreciate over time so sure that could work um but who knows you know one thing that's weird is when you look at the pandemic used car prices have rose because you had general motors and other car companies idle their planes for the better part of a couple months due to the pandemic so that caused used car prices to rise so i could borrow your car sell it thinking that used car prices are going to go down to the future but the way I go to buy it back, well, thanks to the pandemic, used car prices have gone up, and now I find myself taking a loss. So I think that's a good illustration of the risk you take when you short stock. What what makes a uh, a stock a candidate for uh, shorting? People just think the company is doomed. They think the company is going to fall on hard times and potentially go bankrupt. And if the company goes bankrupt, the stock price essentially falls to zero. So if you had GameStop, the stock that the hedge fund was shorting, it has all you know the telltale signs of a company in trouble. It's a retail brick-and-mortar shop for selling video games. Well, people buy video games largely online, like everything else. Plus, it seems like a trend with video games are these uh, multi-person online games. Things like World of Warcraft that you just download to pay a monthly subscription you know, rather than the old-fashioned go to the video game store and buy a Nintendo cartridge like I did when I was much younger. And also brick and mortar, right, with the pandemic, um, mall traffic where GameStops are located in or is down substantially. So all those factors led people to believe that GameStop is kind of like a dead man walking, thus a candidate to short the stock. But a bunch of people online thought differently. And apparently the person who led the charge to buy GameStop stock did his own analysis and said, well, no, actually there's real value with this company for whatever reason. And I'm not familiar enough with video games to know what that reason was. 
But that's kind of the classic case of someone taking the other side of the short. They look at the research and come to a different conclusion and say, I, I think the price is actually going to go up, so I'm going to buy. And if enough people buy that, no pun intended, I suppose, um, that will cause the price to rise, which will cause the person shorting the stock to undertake some rapid losses. And if they just decide to throw in the towel, buy back the stock to close out the position, well, that will cause the stock price to rise even further. And that's called the short squeeze. When those people buying the stock squeeze out the short sellers, force the sellers to buy back the shares they borrowed, which causes the price to rise even farther, which results in profit for the people who bought the stock. So the people who were buying GameStop were not just gamers trying to, to save their favorite company or anything. These these were, um, what, professional stock manipulators? Um, I think it's a combination of people. So the person who did the research that determined that GameStop had real value, I think it was just an a amateur retail investor, which is fine, just using publicly available information to reach a different conclusion that the hedge funds reached. Uh, again, I don't know what his rationale was. I'm not familiar enough with the inner workings of GameStop. But apparently this guy did a deep dive and said, no, I think there's real value here. So I think there are some people who believe that. These are other people who have some nostalgia for GameStop and wanted to save the company by giving by buying its stock. And I think there's some other people out there who just wanted to really stick it to a hedge fund. <laughs> they knew there's this big hedge fund. You had potentially billions of dollars at stake with the short position. And I think people are rightly upset that 10 years ago during the financial crisis, a lot of hedge funds got bailed out. The big banks got bailed out while everyone else took it out of the chin. People lost their homes. People lost their jobs, lost their businesses. You know, a generation of high school and college graduates, may not a generation, but several years worth of high school and college graduates saw their job prospects erased thanks to the financial crisis that Wall Street caused. And they're saying, well, you know, the people who caused the financial crisis, these hedge funds and banks, you know, they're the ones who get bailed out. The people who are the bystanders, they're the ones who pay the costs. So here, 10 years later, we have the opportunity to stick it to a hedge fund and cause them to earn some substantial losses. You know, sure, it's not the same hedge fund that existed 10 years ago. You know, they didn't get a bailout from the financial crisis, but, you know, it's a way to take a scalp, if you will. So I think that was a motivation for a lot of people just to squeeze out a hedge fund. And this hedge fund, if you believe the reports, has taken several billion dollars of losses. You know, lost something like 53% of its assets. So I think there's this real burning anger that simmered for 10 years of how, how Wall Street completely skirted all the damage they caused due to the financial crisis 10 years ago. I want to talk about how this uh, impacted uh, Wall Street overall, but we have to take a break here, Chris. Can you stick around for a few minutes and we can dig down some yep. more? All right, my, good. Guest, my guest is uh, economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan Flint, and we're talking about GameStop and uh, Wall Street and, um, and, and a lot more. So uh, we're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well, and we'll be back with Chris Douglas shortly. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. There's more straight ahead.
Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Wearing a mask helps prevent the spread of COVID-19. Wear your mask correctly. Wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds before putting on your mask. Holding the ear loops or ties, make sure the mask covers your nose and mouth and secure it around your chin. Try to fit it snugly against the sides of your face. Make sure you can breathe easily and keep the mask on the entire time you're in public. To learn more, visit cdc.gov coronavirus. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Imagine a journey down a picturesque riverway. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner Program.com.
the Tom Sumner Program.com. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm talking with uh, Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan Flint about uh, Wall Street and GameStop. Uh, Chris, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Are you welcome? Great to be here, Tom. Um, you know, in the last segment, we were talking about uh, GameStop and, and what happened there. But but also, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about how it happened and, and the um, the online these these newer online brokerages and are they attracting people who don't usually uh, participate in the buying and selling of stock yeah i think that's a big part of it so the most famous online brokerage perhaps is this robin hood trading app where it's yeah. an app you download on your phone and you can buy and sell stocks for free uh, which is an innovation because if you go back to like the 1980s and before, if you wanted to buy or sell stock, you'd have to call your stockbroker, a person behind a desk, and tell him what stocks you wanted to buy or sell. He'd go out to find the other side of that transaction, either the person wanting to sell or buy the stocks that you're looking to buy or sell, and then you and him would make the transaction, and then the stockbroker would take a fee for that service. You know, those are the old-fashioned stockbrokers you would see. Now, how, is um, Robin Hood, how is Robin Hood making its money then? So that's interesting. So the way I understand it is that Robin Hood has partnered with a big hedge fund, Citadel. So when a buy or sell order comes through Robin Hood, Robin Hood sells that information to Citadel, and then Citadel executes the transaction. So I'm going a little bit out of limb here from what my understanding is, but suppose you want to buy, say, Amazon stock through Robinhood. Citadel would transmit, or Robinhood would transmit that order to Citadel, and then Citadel would know that an order for Amazon stock was coming down the pike, so th- that order for Amazon stock would cause the price of Amazon to go up, right? So what Citadel could do is buy Amazon stock before that order takes place. So they buy the stock before the price rose, if that makes sense, right? So I'm going to buy a particular stock that's going to p- cause the price to increase. But if someone else knows the price is going to increase before it actually does, you could buy the stock before the price increases and profit on that difference. So that's a source of profit for Citadel. And then Robinhood sells that information to Citadel, which is how Robinhood makes its money. I don't know if I'm doing a great job explaining it, but that's my understanding how Robinhood could make money by not charging a transaction fee for buying and selling stock through the platform. Is it the difference between a commission and a transaction fee? No, it's. it would be like, suppose you're going to buy stock, right? Uh-huh. So if you buy stock, that's going to cause the price to go up a little bit because that's an increase to the demand for the stock. But if I know you're going to buy that stock, and before you actually buy it, I go and buy it first, well, what that does is I buy the stock before the price rises after you bought it. 
So the difference between what I paid for the stock and what you end up paying for the stock is a source of profit for me. So oh, okay. the traditional term is called front running, where if you know what order is coming down the pike, you race to the front of the line to buy the stock before I buy it. And as a result, you buy when the price is slightly lower than what it will be after the other person buys it. So I think Citadel would highly dispute that it's called front running. But from what I could tell, that's essentially what's going on. And that's pretty much um, the the activity that we see going on <laughs> on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange when all that chaos is happening. Right. And there is evidence, too, that um, that's what high-speed traders do. Uh, Michael Lewis, the famous um, author, wrote a book about it, about how a lot of these high-speed exchanges, what they do is they're able to act on information before everyone else does. So they know what order for a particular stock is coming down the pike, but since these high-frequency traders have a faster connection to the stock exchange than everyone else, they're able to buy the stock before every, everyone else, which causes everyone else to pay out slightly higher price for the stock, and then that difference is a source of profit. I think it's like the old um, saying that if, you, or you, if you're using an app that's free, the app isn't the product, you're the product. So um, Robinhood is free, so the information given to other players in the market is really the product. The app is a way to gather that information. Um, is, is there... Are, are there a lot of apps like Robinhood that are that are available now? Um, no, I think Robinhood was unique. It's, it, it was basically the only app that would allow people to buy and sell stock, buy and sell stock for free. Although I understand there's a competitor, something called Public.com, something like that, where you could buy and sell stock for free. The distinction is though. This is just my understanding. I don't actually use it. But if you're on public.com, everyone's portfolio is public, hence the name. So if I'm on there, you're on there, we can see each other's portfolio. Now, this, so this I, I think, whole exchange um, that, that took place with regard to GameStop, were all of the transactions uh, done through Robinhood, or was that just a high-profile um, Um, I think vendor. it's hard to say how many. I would say a substantial chunk were done through Robinhood because that's what these people trading on message boards use. Since it's free, um, it's on everyone's mobile device, so it's really easy to use. And that's the criticism of Robinhood that um, at the height of the GameStop mania, so we're talking about maybe last week, Thursday, Friday, Robinhood puts restrictions on GameStop transactions through the platform. For a, per a period of time, they wouldn't let people buy GameStop stock. They would only let people sell the stock. Well, that's a surefire method of, the way of a way to make the stock price fall. If you can't buy, you could only sell. And at the same time, you see the price of the stock going down. So a lot of people were making allegations that, look, the market's rigged one of the largest trading platforms that lots of people are using to buy this particular stock is only allowing sales. They're not allowing purchases, which is forcing the price down. The conspiracy theory being, and there might be some truth of this, who knows, that this is a way to take some pressure off of the hedge funds who are shorting the stock. 
by having one of the biggest platforms just prohibit purchasing the stock and only letting the stock being sold. With the the advent of the GameStop mania last week, um, how how did Wall Street and, and how does it typically respond when there's an event like this? And I'm talking so, about basically the stock exchange itself. So Wall Street doesn't like volatility. That doesn't like uncertainty. So that always uh, puts some downward pressure on, on just the overall market. So that certainly doesn't help. But you didn't see much of a market reaction because I think people are like, well, this is kind of a one-off thing with a one-off stock. This is highly unlikely to translate into volatility for other market prices but you did see a market decline you know maybe four or five hundred points to the dow towards the end of the week because if you have hedge funds who have to unwind their short position so these hedge funds who borrowed the stock sold it thinking the price is going to go down but the price is rising some of them are going to throw in the towel and start to just buy back those shares of stock and then recognize and recognize their losses. Well, the losses they recognized caused perhaps the market to fall. So I think that's the only market reaction you're really seeing. I don't think that what's going on is going to cause a broader market correction. Other things might coming down the road, but GameStop by itself is not enough to say crash the market. Any reaction uh, from the stock market to uh you mentioned Amazon to uh, Jeff Bezos' uh, announcement that he's changing roles with the company. Um, I don't think so. Unless it doesn't seem like the market thinks that he's changing roles due to some sort of impending scandal. It just looks like there's a CEO who wants to retire and focus on other things, and a successor who everyone has thought that was the person who was kind of in waiting to be CEO will become CEO. So it's nothing that's really roiling the market. So it's seeming like pretty much like business as usual. Correct. And then Amazon posted earnings per share that was far higher than what the market was expecting. So I think the market overall is fairly happy. Like Amazon Web Services, which is the biggest source of profit for Amazon, posted something like $14 in earnings per share when the market was expecting closer to 7 So the market's like, hey, this company's doing great. So... Uh, you know, we're fine with the leadership transition. Now, if it was a scandal where Amazon posted much lower earnings per share compared to what the market was expecting, and then there was a leadership shakeup, that would be a whole different ballgame. Now, it was just a uh, month ago that uh, um, rioters breached the Capitol in Washington, D.C. I don't think we've talked since then. Was there Was there a market reaction to that? event no there wasn't really at the time the market actually rallied at the same time the house and the senate chambers were being breached by the protesters and i think we talked about this last week that the reason why there was no market reaction was because the market probably thought that this was just a one-off event by some protesters who got out of control it's not a harbinger for future political instability of the U.S. Oh, that's you know, right. That people... We we did talk after the uh, after that event. I I had forgotten that. I thought um, that that event happened since we talked. 
No, we talked maybe a day or two after it happened, but now that we have a month's worth of perspective, I think it's interesting to go back and revisit what we talked about because I think what we talked about really came to pass and that the market, by not reacting, was indicating that we don't think that this is a signal of future political instability. You know, people talked about a coup attempt at its direction. I think that was overstated, to say the least, that there is no danger that the federal government was going to topple as a result of some protesters storming the Senate chamber. It looks bad on TV, but the cops remove these people and then the government goes on as usual. It's not a Myanmar situation where the military took control of the country after a presidential election. You know, nothing like that happened. And I think that bore out over the last month in that the federal government was not disrupted as a result of the Capitol protest. So people got arrested. You know, the FBI is looking for more people who are at the protest. Right. But the new president was inaugurated. The new administration is getting down to business. And really, if you were asleep during the protest and then just woke up and never watched the news, you'd be hard-pressed to see how things changed as a result of it. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point, Chris. Um, but w- you mentioned uh, President Biden uh, being inaugurated and getting down to business, and the, the first thing on, on his agenda is trying to address COVID-19 relief, and he has uh, suggested $1.9 trillion in a COVID relief package, which he says the Democrats can... Uh, uh, pass on their own, but he wants to try to get Republican uh, support for his proposal and have it be more of a bipartisan effort. doesn't look like it's going to go that way, and the Republicans are offering an alternative, which is something like a third of what the president is proposing. Um, is there anything significant about... Um, the differences in those two proposals that that we should be aware of or know? Yeah, it's hard to know what the details are of the Republican proposal other than they want something smaller. Well, so, they, they've suggested uh, capping who gets relief. Um, the president's plan gives everybody a $1,400 check. The Republican plan gives only some people a $1,400 check, and I think the cutoff is those uh, making less than $100,000 a year. Um, and, and those seem to be the differences that the average person is concerned about. You know, am I going to get a check and how much? Yeah, it just, it just doesn't seem like that cutoff is different from the cutoff for the first two checks. So the first two checks you had to be making, it depends if you're single versus married, but if you were single making less than $75,000, you got a check. If you're making more than $75,000, you got a prorated check, but I think it cut out somewhere around $80,000, $85,000. So I believe if you were married making less, more than $100,000 for the first two checks, you still need to get one. So... If that's still the cutoff for the Republican proposal, that doesn't seem very different um, than the two previous proposals. And also, my understanding was with the Biden $1.9 trillion proposal, there would also be a cutoff 
the $1,400 would be the difference from the $2,000 that was talked about back in December and the $600 that people got. So my thought was if you did get a $600 check back in December. It looks like we we lost Chris, the the call dropped, but uh, I suspect he'll call right back, and there he is. Yeah, hi, Chris. Stand by. And there's, and Chris is back with us. Thanks for calling right back, Chris. Hey, sorry, I don't know what happened there. I have a good signal. Um, what I was saying was is that my understanding under the Biden proposal was that if you didn't get a $600 check back in December, you wouldn't get a $1,400 check now. So it's, po- so it's possible the Republicans just want to dial $1,400 down to something lower. I think that's part of it. But the $1,400, does it constitute the entire $1.9 trillion of the Biden proposal? So I think there are some other reductions that the Republicans want on top of perhaps a reduction of the checks people get. Well, here's a chance for you to do, uh, you know, your your uh, favorite line on the one hand and on the other hand. Um, what are the short and long-term effects of the COVID relief going forward? So there's always this trade-off between short-term and long-term. So if you do the full $1.9 trillion, you really goose the economy short-term. You send out lots of $1,400 checks. Uh, I think at that $1.9 trillion, there's substantial aid to state and local governments for things like um, vaccine distribution as well as to meet other COVID-related expenses. Also aid to schools and colleges and universities for COVID-related expenses. So you'd just be would dump it. You'd be dumping a ton of money into the economy right now. You know that would boost consumption. You know that would boost GDP. You know the stock market would love it. You'd see a market rally. But you'd be adding 1.9 trillion dollars to the federal debt. Um, you know that's the equivalent of a year's worth of income tax revenues. So right now we have debt to GDP of over 100 percent, which means the government owes for the national debt more than the market value of all the goods and services produced in the economy in a given year. We haven't had that situation since World War II. Uh, What will another $1.9 trillion do to the economy on top of that long term? Well, it's kind of hard to know. I think it's a risk. Some countries have gotten themselves into real trouble when they get debt levels that high. Other countries, like Japan, well, it seems to work okay for them, but it's a big unknown. You know, likewise, the Federal Reserve has substantially increased the money supply since COVID. You know, the money supply has increased by 67% over the course of the last year, um, which means that all the dollars ever created in the history of the United States, something like 40% were created last year. And we've just never seen that kind of money supply creation to the U.S. over such a short period of time. Will that lead to inflation? Well, not lead to inflation, it's hard to know. And how does the pandemic impact whether or not we see inflation? Yeah, so that's a good question. Uh, I I think one thing the shutdown did was close a big chunk of the economy, which limited where people could spend their money, so that helped suppress inflation. 
So if you can't travel, if you can't buy, well, planes are still flying, but you can't really buy a plane ticket to go places like Disney World that are closed. Um, if you can't, you'll go to concerts, movie theaters, restaurants. You have very limited options of where to spend your money, which is going to suppress inflation. You're just not going to see inflation in sectors of the economy where people can't spend money. Um, you do see a little bit of price inflation where businesses have remained open, such as grocery stores. Uh, but there's a concern that once the pandemic is over, you're going to have this so-called pet-up demand where people are going to want to travel, buy plane tickets again, go to concerts again, and that could release the forces of inflation. So that's a big question mark if that'll happen or not. Um, but there's, you'll call it $3 trillion more money floating around the economy now compared to before the pandemic. Will that newly printed money hit the economy once the economy fully reopens, or will it still sit in the banking sector like it is now? No one really knows because we've never been down this path before. But I think it's a risk that's worth being concerned about. Is there any other big news from from Wall Street? I know we've been sort of preoccupied with uh, GameStop. Um, no, that's kind of sucked all the air out of the room for the last week just to see <laughs> a price of, of a stock that's gone from $20 where at least one major hedge fund thought it should be closer to like $1, go up to nearly $400 based largely on the chatter of an internet message board. So I think that's been the major news out of Wall Street. Uh, we'll see what happens um, once that settles down and things move forward. Um, I think probably the next thing that I'll, Wall Street will react to is whatever stimulus package gets through the House and the Senate. Um, the difficulty with the stimulus is that the Senate is split 50-50. You have um, key senators like Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Kristen Sinema in Arizona. Democratic senators um, from historically red states. I mean, West Virginia is extremely red. Um, Trump wins that state by close to 40 points. Arizona is more of a toss-up state. But you know, if you're a senator from a toss-up state or a red state, you can't really toe the Democratic Party line without worrying about your re-election prospects. So, you know, those senators are going to be swing votes in a deadlocked Senate. So people will be watching with how those senators um, come out with supporting uh, whatever stimulus package the president offers versus what the Republicans are willing to offer. And I think the market will, will react to that. And then with the pandemic, I mean, who knows? Who knows what the next week or the next month will bring? <laughs> That's true. Well, hey, we're just about out of time, Chris. Um, the time has flown by, and I think I understand what happened with GameStop a little better than I did before, and I appreciate your explaining it uh, for me. Um, and, and I look forward to our uh, next conversation uh, next month. Me too. I will look forward to talking to you in March. All right. Thanks a lot, Chris. Take care. Hey, you, you too. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. That was... Um, Chris Douglas, economist from uh, the University of Michigan, Flint. Coming up at the top of the hour, we have two hours of commentary and analysis about the uh, 
current headlines and, and uh, current events uh, in, in the world of politics with our weekly roundtable, Armchair Politics. Um, we have some comedy and music coming up in the next segment first, but then uh, Bobby Clayton Walton will join our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you're worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hopper. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. The Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean. To wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. 
where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Tom Sumner, program.com. The Tom Sumner, program.com. First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Good evening and welcome to the Money Program. Tonight, on the Money Program, we're going to look at money. Lots of it, on film and in the studio. Some of it in nice piles, others in lovely clanky bits of loose change. Some of it neatly counted into fat little hundreds, delicate fivers stuffed into bulging wallets, nice crisp clean checks, pert pieces of copper coinage thrust deep into trouser pockets, romantic foreign money rolling against the thigh with rough familiarity, beautiful wayward calliculate banknotes, filigree copper plating cheek by jowl with tumbling hexagonal milled edges rubbing gently against the terse leather of beautifully balanced bank books. Sorry. I love money. All money. I've always wanted money. To handle. To touch. The smell of the rainwashed florin. The lure of the lira. The glitter and the glory of the guinea. The romance of the rouble. The feel of the franc. The heel of the Deutschmark. The cold antiseptic sting of the Swiss franc. And the sunburned splendor of the Australian dollar. I've got... 90,000 pounds in my pyjamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira now. The Deutschmark's getting dearer and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. to get some new girlfriends so I went and bought a Mercedes Benz a waste of money eight thousand bucks down the drain I thought the girls would get wild and reckless so I bought cultured pearls and a diamond necklace, a waste of money. That cost me 4000 more. They were returned. I got no girls they repossessed. Both the car and the pearls. I styled my hair Just like Cary Grant's Bought a pair Of those new Tight pants 
a waste of money. Household finance took my pants. <laughs> The female gender, I just don't get it. Just when I'm out of both cash and credit, I found a honey. And this is what's funny. She don't need my money. She works for household finance. <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. I noticed I was late Grabbed my coat, grabbed my hat Made the books and seconds flat But I'm always says and I had a smoke Somebody spoke and I went into a dream 
And I'll meet you with arms open wide See you on the other side See you on the other side See you on the other side And I'll meet you with arms open wide You pilots, get off my lawn! We're trying to do a radio show down here! It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on! Go on, get out of here! 